0: You're listening to an audio resource from Redemption Hill Church. This resource is not meant to be a replacement for participation at a local church, but an accessory to the care you're receiving from your own pastors. To learn more about our church or to give to our ministry, visit redemptionhilldsm.org. Before I begin, I just want to let you know what what a joy it is to, for Helene and I to have been able to worship with you for the past few months. It's been a delight to get to know many of you. It's been a, a special delight to sit under Pastor Sean's preaching and to experience uh, his, his gentle, kind, wise care uh, for us. Um, it is a delight. It's a privilege. It's my privilege this morning. It's my joy uh, to open up God's, words, God's Word with you this morning. If you have a Bible with you, uh, let me invite you to find your way to Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40, the book of Isaiah is pretty much right in the middle of the Bible. So if you don't know your Bible very well, you just go right to the middle, it's, you'll, you'll find it fairly close. And if you don't have a copy of God's Word, uh, the text will be up on the screen behind me. Isaiah 40 was written for a people who were suffering and struggling. They were disillusioned and disheartened. They were weak and weary. So if any of those terms you resonate with, this text will be especially relevant for you. Chapter 39 concludes with a somber prophecy from God that the cruel Babylonians would someday soon conquer what was left of Israel and take them captive Because of their unfaithfulness to God, they would be uprooted from their beloved land and hauled away into exile. In the book of Isaiah, we see God's hatred of sin very clearly. He is a God of righteousness, a God of justice, and when people rebel against Him, when people go their own self-absorbed way and don't trust God, He responds with anger, with punishment, with discipline. He patiently forbears. He he endures much sin, but unless there is repentance, he does come in judgment. At the same time, however, also in the book of Isaiah, we see another side to God's heart in this remarkable book. He is also a God of great mercy, He loves His people even when they're wayward. In addition to the dark themes of sin and pride and idolatry and God's fierce anger, we also discover bright glimpses of things like hope and blessing, of restoration and renewal. God vows to return His people back to their land and to cultivate righteousness and justice and peace. And and there are even places in Isaiah where that restoration and blessing gets extended to the whole world. The scope of God's redemptive work in Isaiah is stunning. Chapter 40 is part of God's amazing work of mercy to His people. We, we We hear this right off the bat as we read the first line, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. God reveals His desire for His people, struggling as they are, He wants them to be comforted. Um, Let me clarify what this word comfort is talking about. When When I think of comfort, I tend to think of um, lounging on the couch or reclining in a lazy boy with a nice, soft, warm blanket over me and some some, real, some of my favorite food, preferably something with chocolate in it. Um, th- that's not the sort of comfort. God's not talking about our creaturely comforts right here. What God wants for his people is to be strengthened or encouraged I heard one man say the essence of this word here is to breathe new life into. And I I think that's very accurate. God is wanting his discouraged, defeated people to be encouraged, to have hope, to, to be strong in their faith. In chapter 40 marks out the path towards that comfort. It reveals to us how weak, tired, discouraged people may experience God's heart-energizing comfort. Isaiah the prophet reveals to us what we must do, what must be true of us if we are to know this deep, restful strength. There are three activities indicated. In this chapter, Uh, let me give them to you, then we'll read the chapter, and then we'll unpack what God is saying to us. To receive God's encouraging comfort, we must be involved in three activities we must listen to God, we need to behold God, and we are to wait for God. Listen to God, behold God, and wait for God. Now listen to this great chapter, this great text. Verse 1. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she is received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, His reward is with Him, and His recompense before Him. He will tend His flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs in His arms, He will carry them in His bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of His hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, And weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in the balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before Him; they are counted by Him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with Him? An idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He is too impoverished for an offering; chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. Who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. Who brings princes to nothing. And makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth. When he blows on them, and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see, who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He doesn't faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power To experience God's amazing comfort, we need to first listen to God. In the first eight verses, there are voices speaking or crying out. And the clear implication is we must pay attention. We need to listen to these voices because they are, in fact, communicating God's truth to us, God's message to us. God's people are to hear were to listen and let me remind you what biblically listening is all about by listening what is meant is more than just recognizing the words it's more than having the sound waves hit our eardrums it's it's having those words take root in our soul it's it's embracing them believing them the message which the people of God hear are to take to heart is twofold first there's a declaration And then second, there's a promise. The declaration is in verse 2. Your warfare, your time of duress is over because your sins have been punished enough. Isaiah is looking into the future. He's prophesying when their ordeal will be over, when their exile will be completed. And the reason is she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. I don't know about you, but at first glance, to me, that doesn't appear to be fair. (laughs) Double for her sins? It sounds like overkill. It sounds like God is overdoing things. Um, Not so. Scholar Alec Mateer points out that the Hebrew word used here speaks of something that is folded over so that one side precisely matches the other. The inference is that the punishment perfectly fits the crime. He translates this, she has received from Yahweh's hand the exact payment for all her sins. The first message which the people of God need to take, heart, need to, take to heart in order to be comforted is that their sins have been sufficiently dealt with. And as a result, their conflict is over. The second message, which God's people need to listen to, to take to heart, is in verses 3 through 5. And remember, whereas the first message is a declaration, the second message is a promise. And the promise is simply this, God is coming. God is coming to you. We read, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. In other words, God's on the way. Verse 4 speaks of valleys being lifted up, mountains and hills being lowered, uneven ground leveled. The point of this is that there won't be any obstacles for God. When He decides to come, He won't be impeded. God promises His people, I'm coming. This reminds me of a scene in C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Four children find themselves in the land of Narnia, where it's always winter but never Christmas. The wicked queen has the land under her spell, but there is hope. Mr. Beaver, one of the talking animals, tells the children, they say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he has already landed. Aslan, of course, is the great lion, the powerful king, the rightful ruler of Narnia. And when the children hear that Aslan is on the move, that he's on his way, they each experience something internally that they didn't expect. Lewis writes, at the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror, and he felt that way because he had earlier made a pact with the wicked queen. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that's the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. The point is, the news of Aslan's coming, the promise of his coming, breathed new life into them. God's promise of his coming to his people is meant to invoke courage and strength and hope. Isaiah is telling his people, take heart, God's on the move. Now now perhaps this is a reference to his coming to rescue them, to bring them back to their homeland. Perhaps this is just a general reference to say, just remember, God's always on the move. What we know for sure is that this promise finds its ultimate fulfillment in the coming of Jesus. John the Baptist made this clear when he said in John 1, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And if you remember the story in John, the next day Jesus showed up. God came to them in the most amazing way. Now, a quick word about verses 6 through 8 in Isaiah 40. These verses are are an encouragement to listen to God, the, the, the point of this whole section. We should listen to God because the Word of God will never fade away. It will always be strong and powerful and true. It's permanent. It's rock solid. It can be completely and fully trusted. Isaiah's first point is in order to experience God's life-energizing comfort, we must listen to God. We must take to heart what He tells us. There's a second activity that needs to be true of us if we want to know His comfort, His strength. And we find this in verses 9 through 29. It's the largest chunk of this chapter, which tells us something of its importance. Here God's people are, are simply exhorted to behold God. Verse 9, go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. In other words, shout this from the mountaintop. And what he, what he is to say, what this messenger is to say, is say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Some translate this, here is your God. And I don't think that quite captures the essence of the the Hebrew word. It's more the idea of look, see, and be amazed. To to behold is to gaze. It's to fix your eyes and do so with wonder. It's it's when your eyes get big and your jaw drops because what you're looking at is, is so incredible. To know God's comfort... We need to see with the eyes of our heart just how amazing God is. We need to be aware of how majestic and awesome He truly is. And that's what Isaiah does here in this section. He helps us to see the grandeur of God. Now, Isaiah describes God in some remarkable ways. For time's sake, I'm going to go through these rather quickly. Let me encourage you, however, on your own, Read and ponder slowly on what we find here. Um, Meditate on these verses. Allow your mind and your heart to truly behold how awesome our God is. It'll do your heart a world of good. Well, Isaiah first points out God's power. He points out His might. Verse 10, Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and His arm rules for Him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. In, in short, God is all-powerful. His reward and recompense speak of his success, his victories over his enemies. So he's mighty, but there's more. If God was simply sheer power, that alone wouldn't necessarily be comforting. But notice verse 11. God's might is coupled with his gentleness, with tenderness. He, he's pictured as a rugged shepherd who lovingly stoops down to pick up little lambs so he can carry them over rugged terrain. And, and then he gently leads nursing ewes, those that might struggle to keep up. I love this combination. This cosmically all-powerful God Is also the God who compassionately helps those that are weak. He's gentle and kind with his. Reading this makes me think of a song by Dan Fogelberg, and I know I'm dating myself uh, with, with him, but the song, it's called Leader of the Band, is a tribute to his father. There's a line in which he describes his dad, who's also a musician, as having a thundering velvet hand. I love that picture. He saw his dad as having great strength, but he's also kind and tender. Our God is all-powerful, yet also gentle. A second thing Isaiah wants us to behold about God It's really two things kind of woven together. Isaiah weaves these two thoughts through verses 12 through 26, and that's that God is really big, and He's without equal. He's massive, and He has no peer. He first helps us to see how big God is, and oh, how we need this. In 1952, a man named J.B. Phillips wrote a a little book of only some 120 pages, and the book is called Your God is Too Small. It's a great title and something that is so often true of us. We we have this silly tendency to try to reduce God, to minimize Him, to bring Him down more to our level. Um, And that never helps. In reality, God is far bigger and greater than our little brains can compute. And he he needs to be to help us, to give us the comfort we need. Isaiah pictures God as being able to hold all the earth's waters in his hand. Picture that. All the earth's water in God's hand. Now, of course, God, being spirit, doesn't have physical hands. The prophet is taking poetic license. But his point is unmistakable. Our God is massive. He's far bigger than this world, this universe even. For fun, this past week, I got thinking about this, this, this description of God. I wondered, how much water can I get in my hand? And I've got fairly, they're fairly large hands And I thought, well, see how much I can get. I poured as much water as I could get, and I poured it. I thought maybe I could get a quarter of a cup. I didn't even feel that halfway. And yet God is pictured of having all the oceans, all the rivers, all the lakes, all the creeks, everything in the palm of his hand. You getting the picture of God as a massive God? God also, according to Isaiah, marked off the heavens with a span. A span is the tip of your hand from the tip of your thumb to the tip of your pinky when stretched out. They didn't have tape measures like we do today. And so to measure things, they would often measure by a span. They would say, okay, it's so many spans. When we try to describe this universe of ours, what do we use? We use light years, which blows my mind. God simply says, oh, it's about a span. He's weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. I think we're to picture God in a workshop with, a, with scales in front of Him, and He puts the Rockies, the Appalachians, oh, and the Alps and the Himalayans and whatever other mountain ranges you know of, He puts them on a scale and weighs them. Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? Who who taught God? And and the obvious answer is nobody. When, When God ordered this universe into existence, he didn't have someone looking over his shoulder giving him advice, he didn't have a consultant on speed dial. Isaiah's point is God is so far above us in terms of wisdom and understanding. In verse 15, we read, Behold, the nations are a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. And then in verse 17, All the nations are as nothing before him. they are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To the people of tiny little Israel, nations like Egypt and Assyria and Babylonia, they were intimidating. But to Israel's God like a drop or like a speck of dust on the scales they hardly register in verses 18 through 20 isaiah facetiously compares god with idols with the false gods that that the people around them and sometimes they did they they held them in such great esteem and isaiah's point is it's laughable there's no comparison at all. Idols can't even move, let alone do anything for you. In 21 through 23, Isaiah returns to helping us understand the bigness of God. He sits above the circle of the earth. He's sitting down, he's sovereign in his throne. And to him, we're like grasshoppers. Um, don't read Isaiah 40 if you want to feel high and mighty about yourself. <laughs> if you want to you know, think you're really somebody, because we're put in perspective. We're told that God stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. As easily as some of you pulled apart the curtain in, in your bedroom or your living room this morning to let in the sunlight, God out, stretches out the heavens. As easily as you might throw a blanket over some chairs to make a tent for your kids, God stretches out the heavens. He brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. And then in the next verse, we're told that God simply breathes on them and they're gone. When God, this is showing God's sovereignty. When God decides it's time for this particular ruler, or this particular dictator, that his time up on the world stage is over, he simply blows a breath and they're, they're gone. One more breathtaking uh, picture of God's bigness is in verses 25 and 26. Isaiah invites us to go out on a clear night and look up at the stars. When there's no clouds, and look up at the stars. And then Isaiah says, oh, by the way, God created every one of those. And God brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. God has a name for every single star there is. Can I put that in perspective for you? Um, According to the sources, and I I went to several sources trying to make sure all this is right, according to the best sources that I could come up with, the Milky Way, the galaxy that we're part of, has some 250 billion stars. And that's just our medium-sized galaxy. In the observable universe, what our most powerful telescopes can detect, what our best scientific equipment can figure out there are approximately one and this is the estimates of astronomers there are approximately 100 billion galaxies and some estimate there's as many as 10 trillion galaxies i'm going to let you do the math here my brain hurts with numbers like this the final picture of god in this section when Isaiah invites us to behold God, the final picture is that although God is unbelievably great in power and wisdom and size and knowledge and every other thing you can think of, He also loves to help weak people. Don't say such a big God won't have time for little old me. Don't don't think, well, he, well he's gonna ignore me because he's got far, far bigger things to think about. No, the God who there's not one star that goes missing without his knowledge is the same God who knows intimately every detail about you. Yes, he is massive, but he lovingly pays attention to everything about you. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. That is astounding and incredibly comforting. This massive, powerful, wise, untiring God stoops to strengthen weaklings like me and weaklings like you. He's got the strength to spare and strength to give and he loves to give it. And that leads us to the third activity that Isaiah wants us to see. He says, listen to God, behold God. Thirdly, in order to experience God's strong comfort, His rich encouragement, we need to wait for God. The last two verses, many of you probably know, some maybe even by heart, even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God gives strength to those who wait for Him. Some Bible translations use the word "hope" instead of "wait." Um, The Hebrew word is so rich that it's hard for one English word to really to to really uh, match what it's saying. It's actually both. It's waiting with confidence. It's waiting expectantly. It's this waiting on God that um, I guess I wrestled with more than any other aspect of this passage. Why? Why waiting? Why does God value our waiting on Him so much? Why not some other activity? <laughs> I, I don't know about you. I, I don't. I don't like to wait. It's, it's not. It doesn't come natural to me. So why? Why waiting? Here's here's my best take, my best understanding of what waiting involves. Waiting on God takes humility. To wait for God means I'm not in charge. To wait is to relinquish control. I probably should better say it's to relinquish the illusion of control. Waiting takes humility. But it also requires faith. To wait for the Lord is to trust Him, to trust His wisdom, that His wisdom is far bigger and better than mine. It's to trust His goodness, that He does have a good heart, that He will work all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And it's trusting His timing, not mine. I think, I see clearly, and I think, my timing, God, it's, it's here, it's now. And God says, wait, wait a little longer. When God sees his children waiting for him confidently, expectantly, when he sees humility and trust in his children, he loves to give strength. He loves to encourage. He loves to breathe new life into you. I hope and pray that you hear God's heart in all of this. Yes, He hates sin with a passion, as we see all throughout Isaiah, but He's also rich in mercy. He loves those that are His, and He desires to comfort you. No matter where you're at, no matter what you're struggling with, no matter what you're wrestling with, no matter what you're going through, God loves to show you mercy. He wants you strengthened. He wants you encouraged. He wants you filled with faith and hope. His desire, his desire is to comfort you, to strengthen you, and to encourage you. In fact, God so wants you to know his strength that he did the unthinkable. He became weak so that you might become strong. God the Son became a helpless baby, and then years later, He willingly went to the cross. Corinthians tells us that Jesus was crucified in weakness. He experienced the ultimate discomfort that you might know the comfort of God. He became poor that you would become rich. He died so that you might live. Friends, a God like this can be trusted. A God like this is one we should listen to, take to heart His words, His declarations, and His promises. A God like this is one that we should desperately want to get to know. A God who loves Weak little O me to that extent is worthy to follow and he's worthy to abandon everything for. Would you pray with me, please?